can happen in conversations where you are building a relationship built on the idea of like being there for one another. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what do your sex life, bank balance, and life expectancy have in common? They're all hard to talk about unless you're in a sale. I have had, for many years, an inclination to talk about subjects that make people uncomfortable. In 1997, when I was in my late 20s, I launched a website called Nerve.com. The tagline, literate smut. We published an account by a guy in prison about prison sex, an essay by the Surgeon General about masturbation. We ran confessions of a male prostitute and a 28-year-old virgin. And we published raw, beautiful photographs of naked women and men. My parents, suffice it to say, were mortified. Their friends referred to me as Larry Flint. 10 years later, my wife and I started a website for parents. The impulse was similar, we thought. This is a subject that people lie about, so let's dig into it. Let's do some truth telling. Here's a clip from a TED talk that my wife, Elisa, and I gave back in 2010. It seems to us that when people start dissembling, people start lying about things, that's when it gets really interesting. That's a subject that we want to kind of dive into. And we've been surprised to find as young parents that there are almost more taboos around parenting than there are around sex. We really felt like what we kind of went in expecting had nothing to do with what we were actually experiencing. Um, and, and so we decided we really wanted to give it to parents straight. We really wanted to kind of let them understand what the realities of parenting were um, in an honest way. Why, I sometimes wonder, did I do this? Was it a rebellious impulse, a desire to show my conservative family that I was gonna do things on my own terms? To show my father that you give your son your own name at your own risk? Perhaps. But I also think it was something else, a desire to find the blush zone to figure out what we're afraid to say, because maybe that is where our humanity lies. I've been fortunate to be able to continue that journey with this podcast. These interviews have deepened my understanding of science, evolution, political discord. They've changed the way I work and the way I eat. Some have even changed the way I think. But one thing I didn't anticipate back when we started was how often these conversations would get personal, even confessional. How often I'd find myself having a heart-to-heart -heart with my guests about some truly sensitive subjects. Last season, when we had journalist Peggy Ornstein on the show to talk about her book, Boys and Sex, I found myself sharing some of my hopes and fears for my teenage son now that he's old enough for romance and sex to be part of his life. I still don't think he's listened to it, by the way, but you never know. A few months ago, we had Columbia professor Carl Hart on the show. He'd just written a book called Drug Use for Grownups, in which he admits to being a regular recreational heroin user. His honesty, at some personal risk, inspired my own. I found myself admitting that I enjoy the use of drugs with some regularity, and I think, on reflection, they've had a net positive effect on my life. And just last week, I asked Malcolm Gladwell if he wrote his latest book, The Bomber Mafia, as a way to get closer to his father. And we ended up having a moving exchange about fathers and sons and the stories we inherit and those we pass on. These exchanges have reminded me of the value of saying the things you hesitate to say. When you feel the urge to stop, to hush up, 
that may be exactly where you want to go deeper. That's why I was so elated to find a kindred spirit in Anna Sale. She's been having intimate, difficult, sometimes painful conversations for almost a decade. First as the host of the fearless podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, and now with her book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. Anna is fascinated, as she likes to say, by the things we think about a lot, but need to talk about more. And over the next hour, we'll talk about some of those things, like infidelity, financial anxiety, and our own mortality. I have to say, this is one of the most personal conversations I've had on this show. And I like to think it's among the most meaningful too. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. In terms of your heart out, it's your heart out is at what time? Um, let's see, 1230 Mountain Time. Do you think, is it, is that, I mean, might, if it went a little bit longer with that, might you have the time or no, you really have a heart out then? Well, it's, I, I have to run to the ATM for the babysitter before the babysitter okay. leaves. Um, <laughs> okay. but if, but, but yeah. it's not hard, you know, alarms yeah, yeah. won't go off at, at, at half past. Okay. But okay, somewhere close to that. Wonderful. Well, Anna Sale, welcome to the next Big Idea podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to join. Well, let me first say, Anna, that I just love what you're doing with the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. It's it's really a project close to my heart, and uh, you now have a new listener. Yay! <laughs> and I really enjoyed your book and learned from it. So thank you for all that you do and for, for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Well, this is really a deeply personal book, and you read the audiobook yourself, which which I really appreciate as a listener. Let's play a clip from the opening. These are literally the opening sentences of the book. When I was 30 years old, words failed me. I couldn't stop my marriage from unraveling. Despite going to couples counseling and church, despite buying new relationship books and rereading passages I'd underlined in old ones. We'd been together since I was in college and had learned how to be adults together. We were best friends who loved each other. And then we were two people who couldn't be in the same room together. How do you see that divorce now? Do you still have pain associated with, with those memories or does it feel pretty, pretty fully healed? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think of now of that time and I feel so much like I just want to hold uh, both myself going through it and also even my ex like we were both really trying really hard and you know doing our best and sometimes it was painful and hurtful to each other and sometimes you know we were we were better at it but uh i i feel like now i can look at that moment in my life as a pivot point that led to everything else so yeah. and i'm and i'm really happy right now in my life and feel so kind of like shocked and surprised by how much my life and world has expanded since that point in ways that are really beautiful and wonderful that wouldn't have happened if I had stayed in that marriage. But what I mostly think of that time as 
is is it was my version of what I think happens in everybody's life at some point, sometimes much earlier than 30. For me, I made it all the way to 30, to um, running into this moment in life where it feels like the track just falls out from underneath you and where you thought you were going and who you thought you were going with changes. Mm. And it was a moment where I really had to look straight at the fact that it didn't matter what my intentions were. I was going to have to figure out how to deal and how to move through this time because the change was happening. We happen to be living in a time, as you point out in the early pages of the book, that there are a lot of people who feel unmoored right now. We've had erosion of religion, declines in confidence in government and media. People are lonely. I, I, I was amazed by this statistic in your book. 60% of Americans said they felt lonely in 2019 before the COVID epidemic. Do you see the Death, Sex, and Money podcast, and, and then by extension this book, as an attempt to, to help people reconnect? Do you see it as a form of healing through, through shared experience? I hope it's part of that work. I mean, that work is really big in the United yeah, States yeah. And, and in a lot of countries right now. But I think it's it's a profound need. And I think the book and the, and the show do it in kind of in two different ways. Like I think Death, Sex and Money as a listening experience as a podcast. I hope it's something that you can turn on and listen to and feel, you know, just by hearing people talk about things that, you know, might might be a little like hard or where there's been struggle that 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 just lets you as a listener put your shoulders down a little bit mm -hmm. and just think like oh i'm not the only person who's ever gone through some version of this you know and i also hope it can be a little bit of modeling for people how to talk about tough stuff and also a, a way to sort of peer into the details of other people's lives to make you feel sort of maybe more open-hearted and and compassionate and open to connection. Mm. Um, I think the the book is is a little bit more prescriptive and this was on purpose because I as I sat down to write the book, there was a way, you know, I could talk about the reasons hard conversations have been useful in my life and make it more of a memoir. I could do reported pieces and have it kind of feel like the show that you're meeting people that you wouldn't have otherwise run into and hear kind of interesting details about their lives. But I wanted to build it on this sort of scaffolding of this larger mission, um, which is, and I really do believe this, it sounds so simple, but like, I really do believe that if you push yourself to, to try, and to try to have your conversations in your personal life, go to that next level of interaction which usually starts with you being willing to signal that there's somewhere that you're not feeling all tied up and wrapped up and that, that's something you're having trouble with. Like what can happen in conversations where you are building a relationship built on the idea of like being there for one another? Mm -hmm. Like that is what is going to help us build back to having a sense of belonging and community and that we're not just out on our own struggling and feeling lonely. So I do think the book, in, in my greatest hopes for it, is that it helps each of us build back more of that sense of connection in our, in our daily lives with the people who are in our lives. Well, I, I, I think it will. And I think the podcast is clearly already doing that as well. And I thought, Anna, we might today tackle three of your favorite subjects, death, sex, and money. Uh -huh. In the order in which we generally focus on them in life, 
which I think tends to be first sex, then money, then death, maybe. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so with that, how does that sound? That sounds wonderful. Okay, great. Uh, so starting with sex, we thought we'd lead with your opening narration of the sex section of the book. You describe an awkward conversation with your male gynecologist about the frequency or infrequency of your sex life after you gave birth. Let's hear what happens next. Here it is. As he sat on a rolling stool in his white coat, he was trying to tell me something comforting and breezy. Sex can be fun. It doesn't have to end just one way. That intimacy can be redefined and reset to make room to be playful together. Especially if you want to have another kid, he finally said bluntly. Because transitioning from rare or no sex to make a baby sex is a lot of pressure. I went home and dutifully reported the clear, practical advice to my husband. Arthur and I talked about it in the pragmatic, direct way new parents trade updates about calendar commitments and gaps in childcare. When the conversation was just between us, I didn't need to avert my eyes, though both of us seemed to ingest the information as one more thing to add to the to-do list. Talking about sex also forced us to be real with each other about the ways parenthood had changed intimacy for us. Our windows of availability had become narrower, more prescribed. Spontaneity was a luxury we did not have. Sex between Arthur and me took on the utility of the seven-minute workout with the hotel desk chair. A little embarrassing, but enough to get the job done. Once, we tried to fit it in before the delivery from the Thai place showed up and barely made it. This was not slow and sexy, but also not, not fun. Oh my gosh, Anna. Though it's been some years for me, procreation sex can be such a chore. I'll never forget that. Like, <laughs> honey, I'm ovulating. Run, run, run. <laughs> go, you know, get it done. Come on, come on. Go. What are you doing? <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. It reminds me of the great Mark Twain quote. Play is what you choose to do. Work is what you're obliged to do. And <laughs> oh, that's good. I, I never thought that could be applied to sex. <laughs> uh, yes, there we are. Well, and I, I used to talk a lot about sex. I'm out of practice. Some, some 20 years ago, I started a website with my girlfriend called Nerve.com, which was about sex and culture. I read it. I know all about Nerve.com. Oh, amazing. It was, amazing. It was important to me. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. I'm so happy to hear that. I think part of why we were attracted to the topic in the first place is that, first of all, it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's a real reminder that we're a bunch of monkeys, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And we're following yeah. instructions, but we also have all these layers of shame and confusion, and it just sort of feels like a crucible human experience through which we get to know ourselves better and, and, and understand ourselves. Was that part of your attraction to the subject? Yeah. And, and also, like, it's so, it's something that you are in a sex conversation, you know, you can have sex doesn't necessarily involve another person, but in a conversation about sex and, and particularly with a potential partner, um, it's something you're working out with someone else and having to negotiate. So it's also relational. So I, I think that's really, it's not just carnal. It's like also calls us to get to the sort of limits of, of our ability to, to, communicate. Mm. And so I thought that was, I think that's a really interesting combination of, of factors. And, you know, the other thing that I wanted to, to explore in, in this chapter in particular was just like 
all the different ways that sex and the hard conversations about sex show up in our lives. I think there's a lot of conversation in the culture about talking about sex and what's going to happen with a new partner and where Mm -hmm. you're first establishing whether you're going to get together, what's going to happen if you get together, what you both consent to if you get together. Um, But kind of like, you know, that conversation sort of goes away in longer term relationships, whether they're monogamous or not. And, Mm -hmm. And I wanted to also just have some space for that, because I think I think those can be tricky conversations, too, because opening the door to acknowledging change in a long-term relationship can also feel really risky and scary and shaming if it's something about how your body is changing or how your desires are changing. Absolutely. Well, there's a there's a beautiful long-term relationship you feature in an early episode of the show. One of my favorite of the conversations I've heard with Senator Al Simpson and his wife, Anne. Such a mm-hmm. wonderful couple. And they're very forthcoming about sex, I'm, I'm sure with, with your help. <laughs> Here's a clip. The hardest thing for all couples to talk about is sex. And it's hard to believe, but it is. And the big issues in all marriages that hang it up is your sexual relationship. Whoever is the most aggressive, the other one is in control. You know, we're older, so it isn't the issue now that it was when we were young, but it was a big issue, and it is in all marriages. Well, then when you talk about it, you think, uh, well, there's a couple of horny people and want to... No, that's not the point. It's called intimacy. Gosh, I I just love them, and they're such an extraordinary couple, but they, they really nail some of the complexity of sex in a, in a marriage, right? That um, I loved her observation that who, whoever wants sex more, the other one is in control. And that it's this it's something that evolves, but remains complicated and, and often hard to talk about. I know. I just feel they are very much in my life and are very close to me, and I love them, and I'm so grateful for their sharing with me early on in the show. Um, and I learned, you, you said... <laughs> You said, uh, with your help, they they talked about sex. I learned after when we became closer friends and I got to know more members of their family, uh, this is something that they have always been quite open about in talking with people. So so I, I, I shouldn't take credit for that. This has always been something that they have modeled for other couples, that this is the way, one of the ways you talk about how you love each other. But how do you talk about love in the face of infidelity? Coming up after the break, Anna shares one couple's solution. We'll be right back. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better. Positivity is just a belief that there are good things even in the midst of a broken world. Post-traumatic growth is about actually growing stronger as a result of trauma. The universe only has one chance to see through your eyes. Give yourself that much respect and your life that much respect. Join me every week to explore the stories and ideas that show us how we can live even better every single day with people who are changing the world. Tune in to my weekly podcast, Everyday Better, wherever you like to listen. Meanwhile, you talk about another couple in the book, Paul and Megan. A month before their wedding, Paul confesses that he's a full-blown sex addict. He's addicted to porn. He's having affairs. They make the decision to get married anyway. 
they've since done a lot of work, made a lot of changes. How do how do you think about just the breadth of all the of all these differences in experience? I wanted to tell a story in the book about where there has been profound violation and betrayal. Um, and, and in their case, it was prolonged infidelity in a lot of different ways. And to understand how do you begin to talk about that once that's revealed? And and a few things I think are important about that story. Um, when it was revealed, it was Paul who was revealing it to Megan. She didn't catch him still lying. And then he told her everything. And and his his story, I mean, it was very, you know, lots of lots of violations. You know, he had sex with people that they both knew. He had sex with people he met on the internet. You know, he was acting out with porn at work and in bathroom stalls. Like he was, he was really, there was a lot to, to their story. Um, and he shared with her all of it um, to the point where she finally said, if you remember anything else, like I, you actually don't need to tell me anymore. I've, I've heard enough about the extent of, of what was going on. But from her point of view, you know, she could tell something was off and she internalized it and would think like, gosh, what am I doing wrong here? Like, what? why is he so short with me? And finding out about the betrayal and the infidelity, like, gave her this missing information that helped her see like, oh, he was just being a jerk to me and it wasn't anything I had done wrong. It's because he was dealing with all of this that was a secret that I didn't know about. And for her, having all the conversations about his cheating led her to a place in their relationship where she's much more willing and quick to point out when she feels like he's not treating her the way that he should and that he needs to deal with that. So it really changed changed everything for them. But um, what I found so moving about it uh, when I was doing the reporting for the, that section of the book, I first interacted with Megan, um, and she was telling me the story. And I said, "Oh well, could I could I talk to your husband about this just to understand more about what was going on for him?" And uh, she was like, "I'll ask him." And and he sent me a note and said something like, "You know, I heard that." that talking to you was really helpful for Megan. And so if it's helpful for to her, I, I'd, I'd be happy to do this too. Like it was out of love for her that he was mm-hmm. sharing his story, which I thought was, was really nice. Is that something that you found throughout your time hosting, hosting Death, Sex and Money that, that, um, that guests get a kind of therapeutic release through the process? Cause it is bold to share this, this kind of material with the world about, about one's life. Yeah. I mean, I think therapeutic might be the word. I think sometimes it's also empowering because to just feel listened to about whatever you have lived through and the narrative you have about it, it can feel really unusual to have someone listen to you at length. But yeah, I think, I think that that is in the best cases that that's, that's what happens. And and it's, it's really cool to see what happens when someone does an interview with me and to see how it, it changes them. It, often it's it's a lightening, you know, sort of a, a lightening of the pressure on their shoulders of just having having said some things. But it's also nice to see sometimes where someone might be sharing about something that feels really heavy and shameful and then hearing other people talk about that alongside them in an episode um, can also be just a, a, a transformative and just helping mm, yeah. you get out of a, mm-hmm. a, a place of shame. Well, w- one thing that, that is impressive about your, your your journey with the show and now with the book is is that you, you, you put yourself out there alongside your guests. And uh, I was struck by this um, conversation you had with sex advice columnist Dan Savage back in 2014 
when you asked him if there was anything he wanted to know about you. Let's, let's listen to a clip of what happened next. Are you in a committed relationship? I am. Are you not monogamous? Uh, no, Are we're monogamous? monogamous, yes. So what would you do if you found out that he cheated? Or, and what do you think he would do if you found out that you cheated? And cheating is something that will probably happen. Like, yeah. Just put that out there first. The research and the data shows that roughly 50% of men, 50% of women in long-term relationships at some point will cheat. And those 50% of men are not married to those 50% of women. So it will touch almost all committed monogamous relationships. So what's going to be your reaction if and when that happens to you? I know. I mean, I read I read you, Dan Savage, and you make me uncomfortable because I <laughs> intellectually, I understand all this. I get desire. I get that it's not rational and I get that it's it's a real thing. But it I, I don't know what I would do with the hurt. Yeah. My advice would be if and when it happens, you know what people always say when, you know, when they talk about the people they love most in their lives, I would, you know, I would take a bullet for this person. That's hurt. You're saying I would hurt for this person in a really profound and life-threatening way. Infidelity, when people believe in monogamy and monogamy is what they want, infidelity is that bullet. And then if you, you know, if it happens to you, if you get cheated on, you know, what is love and what is forgiveness if you can't forgive the person you claim to love most in the world for a betrayal that really cuts you to the core. Because infidelity is so common, these things should be thought about well in advance of them happening. Because I think if you just set your mind to, that is something as painful it is that we can get through, love each other through, forgive each other for, you're likelier to actually get through it, love each other through it, and forgive each other for it when it happens, if it happens. Listening back to that still gives me a stomach ache. The way he says, if and when it happens. Uh, which I know, that tells me what I hold most precious. Uh, does, does hearing that, Anna, still, still give you a stomach ache? Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> he really wanted me to think about what it would feel like if I were cheated on by my partner. Um, and, and that it was a very real possibility. Um, yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. And I, I, I feel two things about what he says there. I feel like uh, it's really the idea of cheating or cheating on someone and then being cheated on as being willing to take a bullet. It's interesting because on the one hand, I understand it as like, oh, this happened, this is something that happened in my partner's life and it was something they were going through and it's hurting me, but I can love them through this if they are saying they don't want it to end the relationship. Um, so I can hear that. And then on the other hand, I also think like, hmm, I want to know more about the context of this cheating to know whether that's an apt <laughs> Right, <metaphor>. right. Yes. <laughs> because if you're taking a bullet for someone in a context in which they're not pulling the trigger. <laughs> Typically, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I appreciate him forcing us to think of it, to think of, and also to the urge uh, that he gives there to say, this is something, this is a possibility that you ought not to just consider will never happen. Like it's worth, as you're establishing the terms of your relationship, you know, don't just kind of run headlong into assuming monogamy and what that's going to look like, but maybe talk about that and, and what parts of monogamy are important to you if that's a choice you make. Yeah, no, it's, it sometimes struck me that the way that we manage in our society 
the, the way that we approach marriage is kind of the opposite of how we approach business relationships, right? So when we when we enter a business mm-hmm. relationship, we draft a contract that assumes that things, some things might go wrong. And so we're going to try this for some period of time, and it's renewable. And if, if something goes wrong, here's how we're going to handle it. Yeah. But the expectation management in terms of how we approach marriages is sort of the opposite of that. It's like, like we are going to assume that nothing will go wrong. And if anything does go wrong, it's going to be a massive social embarrassment and we're going to, you know, and we might, you know, have a really messy process. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think even embedded in that is this idea, if we are both good, we will not right. have right. anything bad happen to this relationship, which, you know, creates immense shame when, when something does happen that, that means the relationship shouldn't continue. Well, and I think that I feel incredibly lucky in, in my marriage and life. And, but I think that this view that like you really have to earn year after year each other's attention and devotion. And, and I, think in, I think in strong marriages that, that hopefully happens. You know? Yeah, I like that. That reminder that you, you should think of it as having contract renewals embedded in it. Right. <laughs> that you probably assume are going to go through, but you still want to make sure they like you when the term is up. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Um, well, I've, I've commented, Anna, that at, if I were at a dinner party in New York, I would be more comfortable asking the host how often do you and your husband have sex? Then I would be to ask the question, how much money do you make? Uh, right? <laughs> you know, that is... Both are pretty eye-popping, I have to say. Well, in, I don't know. In our circles of New York, the first one wouldn't be as shocking. It wouldn't be as shocking as asking how much money you make. So it's possible that in 2021, we have more taboos around money than we have around sex. So let's talk about money. Let's do it. Let's Let's start with a with a clip from your podcast. People often ask me, of death, sex, and money, what is the hardest thing to talk about? What do people most not want to talk about? And I, you know, I don't really love that question because I would frame it differently. Like death, sex, and money are all hard things and they are hard for very different reasons. And whether they're hard for you depends a lot on the history that you bring to each of them. But I will say, what are we the most clumsy about talking about consistently? Money. I was speaking to Sally Krawcheck back in 2016. She's a former big bank executive who went on to start a digital financial advisory firm targeted to women called Elvest. And I asked her about that. The thing about money mm-hmm. is it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Does it feel awkward sometimes for you to be reaching out to women when you yourself have had such a different experience with money than the vast majority of women in America? Not at all. If you're in some way saying that, oh, Sally, you've been fortunate in your life and, you know, you've you made money in your life, so you should go sit down at home and shut up and not start a new business, quite the opposite. And to say, well, you know what? I've been lucky because I made some money. I'm not going to do anything about it is ridiculous. Quite the opposite. So you heard me saying you should not talk to people. You should go home and, and enjoy your money and not reach out. <laughs> I heard something I didn't like. There's something in there I didn't like that I reacted to. I'm not quite sure what it was now, but dang it, Anna, no. Well, I I can understand how that's how that might have sounded. Um, but I, I I do wonder about like when money is so hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. And when I asked you about what the lesson was after your divorce about money was you've got to have it. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much shame that that can trigger. Yeah. Like. 
well, I didn't have money when I got divorced. And here's this woman telling me I should just have money. Like, you know, I got to tell you this whole conversation. I'm starting to pit out. I'm beginning to pit out just the, you know, what's been so fascinating for me the you know, that you have made the point that I have made money in my life, which I have. Isn't it interesting? I had to come back and tell you that I also lost a lot of money in my life. As if I as if I'm apologizing for it. It's funny you've made me feel quite defensive. I I'm I, I'm sorry. That's okay. I I think that's what I think we're hitting on what's difficult. Yeah. yeah. All right, Anna. So so two reactions. First, you're definitely having difficult conversations. <laughs> <laughs> we have to give you credit for that. You're going there. Um, and I love your observation that money. It may not be the hardest topic, but it's the one we're clumsiest around, you say. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe we have the biggest taboos around it to some degree. Do you think Do you think that might be true? I think taboos are one thing. And then also just like even the common vocabulary that we can use, like the, the words that you choose to use. Like, for example, if you're really rich, you might use the word resources yep. to talk about your sure. money. <laughs> you know, whereas somebody who like does not have a lot of money never uses the yeah, word yeah. my resources you know <laughs> like so so i think that even beginning where to, knowing where to start and then you can run in as you just heard in that conversation with Sally Krawcheck like like i i i really it's i listening back when i asked that first question i wasn't thinking i was going to hit a tender place i thought that this was you know quite obvious like if you're somebody who's have been successful in banking and then you're trying to talk to a w- wider audience like you are coming from a different financial place um, to the audience that you're talking to and how does she navigate that? But but it hit this like um, place of feel, her feeling called out by me um, and was not something I intended. But I think it gets to how uh, all of us, you know, can feel exposed uh, around money really quickly because we talk about it so yeah, rarely. No, absolutely. And her defensiveness there is so interesting because I think I think maybe it's 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 a fear of being isolated that that maybe the very wealthy have that mm-hmm. their money makes them no longer eligible to be part of the regular community of humans, you know, because they're so insulated from normal problems. But mm-hmm. the sensitivity is surprising, and I think it, it just points to the complexity, doesn't it? Yeah. And people are tend to be really uncomfortable sharing their financial the financial details of their lives, particularly as they as they sort of as their income and assets increase, right? There's sort of a veil of of secrecy that exists that might be a problem, right, in our society. That it's just hard for people to 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 know how to navigate the financial world when there's so much sort of discomfort about about talking plainly about it. Do you? I mean, you identify that in the book, but you also confess that that you're not entirely comfortable being totally transparent about your own financial situation. How, where do you think the right balance is? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think two things. I think on the one hand, absolutely like more conversation at all levels at how each of us is doing financially will help us understand how the economy is working, who it's working for, who it's not working for. Um, I think an, on interpersonal level, like talking to friends, talking to maybe people coming up behind you in your career about money, those conversations are so important because money isn't just like something that happens. It's also something that like there are a lot of 
tools and kind of mysterious <laughs> vehicles, sure, investing yeah, vehicles, yeah. for example, you know, that, that like you need to talk about in relationship and not just feel like you have to go to personal finance websites on the Internet to find out how to do money. Like it really is. I have found it really helpful in my life to talk about money with people who are friends and colleagues because it it helps me like learn different strategies and also to recognize like where there are choices you know it's like oh well we can decide to give more money away because we can do that and then this is year we're going to do a little bit less because this and and just like Mm -hmm. helping Mm -hmm. talk about how you make those choices I think can be really useful Um, at the same time you know I will say like I don't feel personally comfortable and I don't advocate for all of us to shout our annual earnings from rooftops or tweet it out like I, I think that Something that is important about money conversation and money stories as we share them is that these are stories where they uh, where context matters. Like money is an important part of the plot of each of our lives, and I think we should all acknowledge that more openly. Um, but I I think that uh, it's it's kind of like for me there's there's the context is really important. So I, I want to talk, if I'm going to talk to somebody um, who's somebody in my field about my earnings history and when I negotiated this pay, et cetera, like I want to make sure they understand, well, the reason I was able to mm-hmm. do that is because mm-hmm. this was going on in the industry and I had this relationship with this person and I had this conversation with this person, you know, because that's, that's how money mm-hmm. works. It's both like what you ask for and what you are worthy of in a particular moment, but it's also very like dependent on a moment in history and what's going on and forces that you can't control both in that moment and, and forces, you know, leading up to that. Yeah. The, 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 the luck factor I think is, is, is so important to be transparent about because it's not something that, you know, people who are successful rarely say I was really lucky. Um, and I wish they would say it more often. Oh yeah. And you don't even have to say I was so lucky. You can just say like, Wow, it was really incredible, and I was so fortunate the right, way things exactly lined right. up. You know, I never could have, you, you know, like it. It's because I think with money, one of the the things that stalls our conversations is often we are drawn to one of two binaries, which is I have what I have because I earned it, um, and I worked hard, which you heard in that Sally mm-hmm. Krawcheck yeah. uh, moment. That if, if I was questioning that, or you have what you have because of the way. Uh, you know, the privilege or the lack of privilege and the history of that moment and systems and the way they operated on you and you had le- yeah. you had little control. And I think that those two binaries are neither 100% true. And I think if we could just acknowledge that both of these things are playing in all of our lives at all times when it comes to money, our conversations would be much more honest. Well, I, I've had this, this funny experience of going from spending the first couple decades post-college what I would consider to be relatively broke. <laughs> and then we we sold our last company to the Walt Disney Company and we made some money, you know. And as you say, it's it's not the sort of thing that people talk about much, but I'll I'll say very briefly that when I, I graduated from college in 1991, the movie Slacker had just come out and it was pre-internet explosion, right? And so <laughs> there was at the time this sense that you can either go try to make a lot of money, you know, which typically go become a lawyer or go into finance or what have you, or do something interesting, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I had this very clear sense that that was the binary world. You either do something interesting or you, or you go to make money. And there's a, there's a Faustian bargain. You can sell your soul if you like, just get a good price for it. 
I didn't want to do that. I, you know, I moved to Little Rock, Arkansas with my, my then girlfriend. I uh, was the calendar editor at the Alt Weekly newspaper. I think that year I made $12,000. I got a job as a, as a book publishing editor, got a raise to $24,000, Anna. But, you know, so I ended up moving to New York City as a book editor. And then I started Nerve.com with my then girlfriend. And, and then we started another business. And I spent, but I spent 15 years building digital media companies and we were on television and got press exposure. So people thought that we that I was well-to-do because they saw me on TV sometimes. But from our perspective, we were totally broke. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we were, and I had to borrow money from my mother-in-law to, to buy uh, our first apartment. Now, let's stop and say the fact that I could borrow money from my mother-in-law was a great privilege, right? And, and, um, uh, mm-hmm. and that we were able to buy an apartment in our 30s but it wasn't until I was 44 years old that we had this exit event and I found myself in a place I would not have expected to be in terms of being you know, fortunate. But the, the money has made more money than, than the companies that we sold just because of this is the, the, rich, capitalism. the rich get yeah. richer. It's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, the eighth wonder of the world, power of compounding interest, particularly when the NASDAQ 100 is returning 20% year over year for the past 10 years. Um, but the things I took away from this are, okay, l- luck is a piece of it, and, and as you say, and, and we really, it's important, I think, to own that. Number two, financial anxiety is generally not correlated with how much money you have. Like when I look to my left and to my right at friends and people I know, like people who were financially anxious before they made money are still just as financially anxious. And so you see somebody driving down the street in a fancy car, they're probably every bit as stressed out about money as the person driving the jalopy. But the, my other takeaway is that when you're young, poverty equals freedom. Like I, I enjoyed in my early mid-20s not caring about money and feeling free. But once you have kids, that money equals freedom in the sense that if you want to read the newspaper, you have to pay someone to watch your kids while you read the newspaper, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that everybody just wants to say, money doesn't matter and it is uncorrelated with happiness, but then quietly in the corner, it really matters a lot, right? So I feel like there's sort of a double speak in our society. I mean, obviously everybody needs this minimum level of money to function and that's number one. But number two, that it's not irrational, like if you are an aspiring poet or ballerina to also decide that you're going to be rational about making some money so that you can have a, a balance of freedom in your life if you choose to have a family. That was a whole jumble yeah. of thoughts, Anna. <laughs> but. No, well, I, I think I, I really like how you articulated this sort of uh, classic Gen X, like ch- choice of uh, to do something interesting or to make money. <laughs> like, I just think that that was like, like that idea of like, that was the way that was sort of the code of like, if you, if you, if you are cool, like you're not going to sell out. And and I think it's others have observed like how the term sell out has just like dropped out of the culture. Now that's not something that we chastise people for. Right. Um, that's right. Which is that, right. really sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, as somebody who has two little kids uh, who are currently being watched by somebody who I'm paying, like absolutely the idea that um, money doesn't equal happiness, but money equals more choices is, is really true. And I, I really like 
I thank you for sort of sharing your own personal narrative about money because I think I think what happened there when you were 44 where all of a sudden you had this windfall of money and then what happens when you have money and how that makes more money like just people who've had that experience uh you know they don't talk about it that much um because it's unless they're sort of like in tech and trying to compare sort of windfalls and and how much money they've they they have but but um i imagine that moment in your life and like figuring out what to do what one ought to do with money now that you had money was probably a, a quite a stressful time and figuring out who you could talk to about that was probably a really interesting tour of your relationships When we come back, Anna tells me that if you want to understand why money makes you feel the way it does, then you need to get to know your money script. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. How has your relationship with money evolved? Well, I will tell you, Rufus, with my own particular money makeup, um, my stresses are, haven't changed that much because it, because my my emotions around money are just so much a part mm. of my personality, yeah. and it's it's been remarkable to me to observe that to be like, oh, I feel the same sense of like emotional mm. flooding around. Oh my God, we have to buy a new car like it's so uncomfortable for me to spend money because it i have this uh i I just am i i don't like spending money i want to like shovel money all the way to savings as a way of making me feel safe and responsible and and so i think what certainly my earnings have changed over the course of my career but i think what's changed more in my ability to manage my feelings around money have been to notice that when I feel, it used to be that when I would feel anxious about spending money, I would I, I would think like, this is my responsible brain telling me that I'm getting out of control and I need mm-hmm, to shut mm-hmm. this down, which is not true. This that it, it, That is the part of my brain that says, I feel uncomfortable spending money. And I need, I have needed to develop the other part of my brain that says, well, Anna, you have to pay for childcare and childcare is expensive. And here's what happens when you pay for childcare, it enables you to do X, Y, and Z. So sort of talk mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. to those feelings. So that more is, I think, how I've um, developed and hopefully grown when it comes to money, because it, it really, it, I would just get so freaked out. And I think really deep down, it's about control. So being sort of pushed in my marriage with Arthur to just like, learn how to share and share responsibility and to trust has been has been really good. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I've seen that in my own life with in, in myself and in friends that really this this kind of predisposition we have to either be v- fearful about spending in our relationship with money or 
relaxed, you know, is is seems like it's somewhat hardwired or or powerfully influenced by our younger experience. And you you quote a, a psychologist as uh, talking about four different kinds of money scripts that people have yeah. and that play out. And it's helpful to understand those. It's 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 money vigilance, money worship, money avoidance, and money status. Yes. I love those four. Can you guess which one I am? <laughs> uh, <laughs> From what I've just told you. Maybe vigilance. <laughs> I am very much a, yeah. a money vigilance yeah. person. Um, and And I think that those are really useful to think about because it helps me sort of sort through, oh, okay, this is like the, this is like an inclination that you bring to it. Like it, um, it helped me understand when I, when I talk to Brad Klontz, he talked about a lot of people in um, social work and, and, and in counseling tend to be money avoidant. Um, this idea, this built-in belief that money is somehow sort of tainting. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really want to talk about money or seek out money because that's dishonorable. And I was like, oh, that, that's sort of interesting because I've seen that play out in, you know, people that I've that I've worked with who don't seem comfortable advocating for themselves, for example, for more money. Um Whereas me, as a money vigilant person, I'm like, well, the thing you're always supposed to do is ask for more money than they first offer you and then see what happens. <laughs> like, I'm yeah, following the rules yeah. to be vigilant, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Um, and and I like that it's just like, these are four types. Like, we're not saying one is better than the other. Yeah. They're all, they all show up and they just give us more information to help us understand each other. I'm a money vigilance uh, script script person. Meanwhile, my wife is not. And uh, on some level, the fear that you'll go broke if you have that, it, it, it never goes away to some degree. But, um, well, one thing that money can't buy yet, to my knowledge, is immortality. Um, yeah. We're all going to die. Let's talk about death. And why don't we start the conversation with this extraordinary exchange you had with Katie Couric. She's talking here about her husband who got cancer and died when he was in his 40s. Is there anything that you think back in that time of your life that you wish you'd done differently? Yeah, definitely. I wish that I had had the courage to really talk to my husband about the fact that he was probably going to die. And I just, it was too, it was too terrifying it was too terrifying for me to admit, and I think I felt so protective of him. And, you know, that wasn't really, that wasn't really my responsibility. Hmm. You know, I think, you know, I think that prevented, that sort of cockeyed optimism prevented me from ever really, you know, saying goodbye. So powerful. Yeah. What do you think we can learn from this uh, this conversation with, with Katie? I mean, I, I just, uh, I, I really am grateful for her honesty there because I think that happens to many of us when someone, whether we're dying or someone we know is dying um, or love is dying, there's this uh, thing that's happening where just facing the facts of it is completely and totally overwhelming for for quite good reason. I mean, at the time, 
she was just talking about she had two little kids, like the thought of losing her husband, you know, was probably a, a really terrifying thing to say out loud. And then on top of that, the idea that she felt this responsibility to be his cheerleader and to, to keep him feeling strong and optimistic in the face of his illness, um, that doesn't, you know, if, if that's your mindset, uh, it's hard to say, you know, let's let's acknowledge that you might not survive this. But what I also hear in her saying in saying that there is that what is what is missed and what is lost when you don't take that moment to acknowledge what's happening. They don't get to know, she doesn't get to know what their conversation might have been like if they had said, uh, you might not survive this and and to hear what they would have said to one another if that was the conversation. And I I know it's awkward and it's scary. And it's not just a conversation that happens in the context of terminal illness. Like I, in the book, I I wanted to have a conversation with my friend mm. Anne Simpson, uh, who you played mm, the clip no. from earlier, um, because I, I sort of was feeling this overpowering sense of dread at losing her because I we didn't become friends until she was in her 80s. And, and she's become someone very special to me. And I felt this... Um, anxiety about whether I was using our time together well. And and so I just had a conversation with her about what it's like, just what is it like to be in your mid 80s? Um, and to how do you think about the things that you need to say and the things that you've already said? And and it gave me an opportunity to express to her, you know, when, when you are gone, I will miss you so much. And this is why you matter so much to me, mm-hmm. which is which is really all you can do in a conversation about death. You're not going to be able to say the thing that's going to fix it's going to fix the fact that one of you won't be there. Well, and I, I wonder you, you you spoke with a physician named Fernando Maldonado. Yeah. He said, "We're not taught to talk to people about death. We're taught to talk about disease and possible cures." And it's I sometimes wonder if this is a a, a peculiarly American condition that we're we're fixers, you know, we're optimistic, we're just looking to fix things. And maybe we're not necessarily as great at, at kind of gracefully acknowledging the, the cycles of life. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the American medical establishment and the American culture at large has been sort of grappling with this in the last, you know, decades. And then certainly COVID has, has forced us to sort of see the ways that our grief rituals are lacking our public grief rituals are lacking um but i i think that something that he fernando told me that i think is so important you know he was speaking there as a physician that that he wasn't taught to sort of talk about death as an inevitable end for all of us with his patients and he has reflected on that because he as he was doing his medical training his mother was dying from cancer and he t- told me about how each set of decisions are, do you want to do this next chemo treatment? Do you want to try this next intervention? You know, it was, it's always in the, you know, we can try this next thing. And, and looking back, he says, you know, I think that the last chemo treatment that, that my siblings and I, you know, agreed to do with my mother, like, I think that it was needless and caused more suffering than it needed to. And I look at pictures and I see her, I see that she was dying, but at the moment, at the time, I looked at my mom and I saw her eyes and they were still my mom's eyes. Um, and I, I just think that, that 
that middle space he describes mm-hmm. of like, you know, we, we, we really wish there'd be a moment when, when someone, whether it's a doctor or, or some other authority would say, okay, now it's time to say goodbye because this is really happening. But so often you're in this middle space. So um, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to talk about and it's a lot harder to make decisions in. And, and as we're, we're, you know, focused on, you know, the, the, the cures, or we're also maybe just kind of paralyzed by the, the fear of death, we're often missing out on the living part of, of what the time that remains, right? And I, I'd love you have a line in the book where you say, the ideal, I believe, is finding a way to weave acknowledgement of death alongside an ability to not dwell on it too much before it's time. I thought that was, that was really nice. Yeah. Like, and I, I think that that's really, um, you know, like I, I think that's important because I'm, I think the ideal is, is not necessarily for Katie Couric to have, you know, totally rewritten the script of those conversations that she had with her first husband at the end of his life. Um, you know, I, th- I think to to, re- to remind ourselves that there's the possibility to be both that supportive, optimistic partner who is rooting for, for someone to get better um, and also saying, like, should we talk about what will happen if you don't get better? Like, what are you, what are you feeling, you know? Um, and of course, that's a, a, it's a, it's a scarier conversation because that forces everyone to get out of the mode of of problem solving and fixing and into the mode of feelings. <laughs> and it's, it can be hard to, to not just talk about our feelings, but to feel our feelings. But, but I think that that's, that's more of the sort of ideal to sort of explore that in relationship and conversation. You know, acceptance of death, awareness of death as just part of our lives, part of the cycle of our lives can be a, a, a useful tool just in 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 wisely prioritizing things, and and I think something that helps that I think is intergenerational relationships, and I'm so inspired by your 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 close friendship with Ann Simpson, and I, it's something that I have I'd like to do more of honestly in the coming you know years and decades is 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 get to know more people you know who are decades older than me and and younger right and and, and it strikes me that maybe that's part of our as a society having this kind of denial of the cycles of life may, may, may be partly the way that we compartmentalize generations that we don't, you know, live with it. Yeah. And I also think something that is beautiful that happens in multi-generational friendships is it, it also helps you learn to recognize through conversation, like what you're struggling with right now, what is like part of just the season of life that you're in and not just the particulars of your individual experience, you know? Like I, I've i been so helped by having friends who have kids who are older, you know, who are in, who are in school or who are in college and just, just being reminded of the different phases that one goes through as a parent because it can be hard to see outside of the particulars of your own experience. And, and then also to talk to, when I talk to younger people, people who are starting out in journalism to like just help give them perspective about how careers unfold. I, I love that. I love having friends who are of lots yeah. of different ages. Um, but it does come with <laughs> more of the awareness of death. You know, I could be in more denial if I didn't have so many old friends. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
inspired by you, and I really have in the last few weeks been uh, inspired by your approach to conversation and to difficult topics. And I, I, I called my father this morning, who's always been very wise, and I called him to get his perspective and, and, and to ask him a, a kind of a, an unusually direct question. Here, here's a clip from the call. Hey, Dad. Hey, Ruth. So as mentioned, we're doing this podcast about difficult conversations and the, and the power and benefit of having, you know, of talking about the, the challenging things in life. And so I had a question for you that's, that's, uh, that's a little bit on the heavy side, if you don't mind. So you wouldn't describe yourself as a young man. <laughs> I, I would not describe you as, a, as, an, as an elderly, necessarily. You might. But how, how much time do you think you have left? How, how many years do you think? you have left to um, live? You know, uh, it's a very good question. And what I try to do is just make every day uh, a good, if not great day. I know the end is uh, in sight that uh, uh, we're in the last chapter. Um, so I'm just trying to um, make the best sense of that and, and, and do the best I can to fulfill the best that I have done. I don't. The real answer is I don't think much of you know. Do I have a five years or one year or whatever? Because I see so many reversals. People who thought they were you know had a long time and it turned out they didn't, and people who thought they had a short time and they were pleasantly surprised. So I'm more concerned about making each day a good day than worrying about how close it is to the last. Well, but you do, but but you have you have said to me that you know when you're my age, every day is a good day, and so yeah. there is this there is this sense of I mean I'm I mean I'm feeling this at 53, Dad. I'm 50, 53 yeah, yeah, yeah. years old, and so oh, I no, already no, feel I this, this sense of like I'm technically have less than half of my life left, and and I already feel it's starting to cause me to be a little more appreciative of and mindful of, of the time, you know, that uh, try to make it oh, count. Yeah. Let me say this, that I am, I am in the stage where I am uh, lining up. What are the most important things that I'd still like to get done? Number one, number two, it's more a question of the quality of the, of the time and what you do with it. And I think that um, we all have, challenges we all face great difficulties we all are uh, will die but um lots of good things have happened to uh, at least in my life make uh the life that i have lived and am living you know a a privilege and, well uh, I, I i so appreciate your candor and i appreciate your eating your wheaties and your healthy food and uh Doing and getting exercise, and let's make it 15, 20, 25 years, and uh, and uh, and let's let's uh, uh, do lots of beautiful things together as a family, and let's uh, let's catch up more over the weekend. You bet. Lots of love, dear. Bye bye. What one of the nice things? I'm I'm now 53 years old, and I do feel my attitude shifting about priorities and how I spend my time, and. Uh, it feels to me like it's great to, to, to watch your hair going. I mean, I'm now like watching my hair go 
turn gray, <laughs> you know, and the wrinkles and and mm-hmm. the and little corners of my you know body that have like old person you know sort of characteristics, <laughs> you know, and and yes, yeah, and I just uh, I try to make a point of of not looking away because I think that those reminders are clarifying to some degree. Do you think? Yeah, I loved that conversation from your dad. And I I thought it was interesting how you asked a very sort of concrete question. How many years do you think you have left? And his answer was, I've stopped thinking about that having an answer because I've seen people get robbed of time they thought they had. And I've seen people live on longer than they thought they would. I thought that was interesting, too, like that he that this sort of like not being able to know the answer has made him focus much more on the yeah. present just yes. each day. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm probably wired to be more numerically inclined. <laughs> 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 and so I'm sort of like, I, I've actually found myself going to this exercise of, I used to say, okay, Rufus, imagine if you have 12 months left to live, what do you, what would you do? Uh-huh. The answer was always, I would stop my day job and I, uh, and I would just spend time with people I love and, and write, um, try to finish the novel that I've, you know, it's in a back drawer. But I thought, well, that's not very useful because I love my job. You know, I love my, you know, and so I I tried, okay, two years, three years, four years, five. And I decided that five years left to live is a very useful framing for me because my answer to the question, how would you prioritize your life with five years left to live is, I think, well aligned with what I think is the the be- the best way for me to live at this point. So, I like that. I like that because it's not so far down the road that you can't make choices in the immediate term about how you spend your time. But it's also not a an emergency. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, I, I am encouraged though to see we we have one of the guests we had on this show was a guy named Daniel Levitin who wrote a wonderful book called Successful Aging that contains a lot of great news about mm-hmm. the happiness of older people. That apparently people in their 70s and 80s are often at their most content. You know, and maybe it's because of this this kind of gratitude. Yeah, I don't I have a friend who is uh in his early 50s and he was just describing to my husband and I, my husband and I are both in our early 40s. Have you heard of the U-shaped curve? Yes, exactly right. That's exactly it. Happens it. In, in midlife, and he was like, "I'm, I'm pulling out. I'm on my way up the curve. You all are careening down to the bottom <laughs> of the curve." Uh, <laughs> I was like, "Thanks, not a helpful perspective from this multi generational friendship." <laughs> uh, well, I've, 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 I've joked that I think there's, you know, we 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 know about peak oil that I think there's also peak maturity. And in my case, peak maturity was right around like early 40s, so right where you are. I was very responsible and I was a very well-behaved young man. And and I'm in part of that U-shaped curve, I'm now sort of like measured in sort of like doing the prudent thing and not, you know, going to the live music event or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm now, I'm now like effectively more like in my mid to late 30s, and I'm headed for the 20s. Oh, apparently. amazing. So, you know, <laughs> you could, uh, you, you might, you might be at like the, at like peak maturity for the next five years or so. Okay. Well, also, you have young, you have young kids, right? And that's, you don't, you don't have a choice, right? Yeah, that's one like, must be at peak maturity. Yeah. <laughs> With little kids. <laughs> well, Anna, thank you so much for your time and for your podcast and for this book. It's just a, 
a, a wonderful gift to the world, and it's 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 really been uh, a, a great pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, it's been really fun to talk with you too. Thank you for having me on, and thanks for your attention to the through lines between the book and 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 the podcast. Um, okay, cool. well, hopefully we we've, we've landed the plane in time for you to get uh, to an ATM machine, Anna. Hopefully, I know. <laughs> Sorry, it's such a lame thing I have to do. No, no, no. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned some of the powerful personal conversations I've had on this show with folks like Malcolm Gladwell, Peggy Ornstein, and Carl Hart. If you want to hear those interviews totally ad-free, download the Next Big Idea app. You'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for the Next Big Idea in your app store. If you love what we're doing, We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share any thoughts on this and other episodes on Twitter. You can find me at Roofgrisk. That's at R-U-F-G-R-I-S-C. Next week, I'll be cracking open a cold one with Edward Slingerland, a philosophy professor and author of the new book, Drunk, who says we wouldn't have civilization without intoxication. This is a good one. Special thanks to Anna Sale. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos, sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. 